We are in part seven of our financial one thing series. Part seven of our finance series. And uh, this month we're going to bring that series to a close. The first four Sundays of the month of March are going to finish up this series, a ten-part series. And we're looking at the book of Psalms, chapter 112. And each of these sermons is based on one verse. And so we're on part seven and we're on verse seven. Now, I don't want you to open your Bibles. I don't want you to open up the scripture on your phones. I don't want you to open it up on your tablets or iPads. Just look at me and repeat after me. He will have no fear of bad news. He will have no fear of bad news. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. He will have no fear of bad news. He will have no fear of bad news. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. He will have no fear of bad news. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. He will have no fear of bad news. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. Say it again. He will have no fear of bad news. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. One more time. He will have no fear of bad news. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. One more announcement before I move on. The finance seminar after the service it's going to be taught by Dr. Kevin Carrington sitting right there. And I guarantee it's going to be awesome. You don't want to miss that. So come to that right after service. Let's pray. <laughs> Father, I pray today in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you'd speak to us through the power of your word and your spirit. And set our hearts aright. Lord, I speak the blessing of Psalm 1832 over this house. It is the Lord who arms you with strength. And makes your way perfect. He makes your feet like the feet of deer. And sets you in high places. He trains your arms. Your hands for war. So that your arms can bend. A bow of bronze. Father I thank you that at this season. At this time. You are lifting us up into the place of the authority. That you have given us. And you're teaching us to rule. I pray father. That the peace of God would rest on every heart this morning and that you would do away with our tendency to fear but that you would inject into each and every heart steadfastness and trust. I pray it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. One of the greatest difficulties, challenges that we face is finding security in an insecure world. Finding stability in an unstable world. And so much of our lives is comprised of the quest for stability and security. Looking for a firm place to stand. A firm place to situate our feet. So that we can feel like we're secure. So that we can feel like we're doing something greater than walking on a tightrope. So much of our lives feel as though we're walking in a precarious place in which we can fall at any moment. And so we seek security in relationships with other people. We seek security in friendships with other people. We seek security in finances. We seek security in our homes. We seek security by, through home ownership. We seek security in so many different ways. But how many know that there's only one source of security that is a real source of security? The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. There is no other place of security that is actually secure. You can feel secure in a relationship and all of a sudden it can come tumbling apart in a moment. You can feel secure in a job and get a pink slip without seeing it coming in a moment. You can feel secure in home ownership until, until the economy tanks and all of a sudden your house is underwater and you, get it, you, you lose it. You can feel secure in your finances until the, the stock market plummets and all of a sudden even your cash that you've worked so hard to save is not worth anything. Now we're in the midst of a finance series and we're talking about how to steward your finances with wisdom, with godly wisdom. But make no mistake, no matter how much wisdom you apply to your finances, your finances should never ever become a source of security for you. And the paramount sign that we are seeking security in the world is that our hearts are blown by the wind in every direction. Stable today, but unstable tomorrow. Sure today, but unsure tomorrow. 
All it takes is for the stock market to go up and I feel great. But if the stock market goes down, I feel terrible. I had a friend when I was in college who was heavily invested in foreign currency. And that man lived on a roller coaster. Because every day, several times a day, he would stop to check the numbers. And he would, he, you could see it in his face. I just lost $12,000. And then a few minutes later, you see it in his face. I just made $20,000. And he was constantly calling Hong Kong going, sell it, sell it. And then he'd call Hong Kong, buy it, buy it. I mean, constantly throughout the day, I'll say, excuse me. Hey, how's the market? How's the, he's calling Hong Kong. There, it was a roller coaster and his blood pressure was high. He was on a roller coaster during that time. And later on, I called him. I remember years later, I called him. I said, I'm thinking about investing in some foreign currency. What do you think? He said, here's my advice. Don't do it. Don't do it. It'll rob you of your peace. It'll rob you of your security. The scripture says of this man, he will have no fear of bad news because his heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. Who is this man who has no fear of bad news, whose heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord? Well, that's easy. Psalm 112, 1, blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who takes great delight in his commandments. This man who fears the Lord and who takes great delight in his commandments, he has no fear of bad news. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. Why? Well, first of all, because his descendants are mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Verse 2. And because also he knows by faith that wealth and riches are in his house and his righteousness endures forever. So of course he has no fear of bad news. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. Now I want to focus on this word steadfast in this verse because it's, I believe it's the most important word in the verse. What does it mean for your heart to be steadfast? I looked at the word in the Hebrew and the word is kun. 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 It's a Hebrew word. It's not what you think. That's one of those words where you don't say, look at your neighbor and say. (laughs) There's a few of them in Hebrew that, oh, Lord, I think about, should I even tell the church what that word is in the Hebrew? They'll have a ball with that one. His heart is steadfast. Steadfast. Kun. And that Hebrew word means two things. First of all, it means fixed, secure, firmly established, unmovable. And the second meaning of the word is ready, prepared, or directed towards. That is the first meaning of the term. means that when your heart is steadfast, it does not move at all. The second meaning of the term is that when your heart is steadfast, it's ready to move in a moment. Isn't that interesting? That to be steadfast means to be unmovable and yet ready to move at the same time. And if you have one without the other, you're in a state other than steadfastness. That is, if you are unmovable but not ready to move, you're stubborn. And steadfastness and stubbornness are not the same thing. But if you're movable but not unmovable, if there's not a side to you that's unmovable, you're wishy-washy. You're flaky. You're blown with every wind and every circumstance moves you. You've got to be unmovable, but yet ready to move at the same time. I call it nimble stick-to-itiveness. Steadfastness is a form of nimble stick-to-itiveness. Steadfastness, unmovable, yet ready to move. And what, what it means is that I can't be moved by tribulation, but I can be moved by God. Now, if you're living on the West Coast... There's not much fear of tornadoes here, but there is a fear of earthquakes here. And so what they do to retrofit buildings, to to seismically upgrade buildings on the East Coast, is they make sure that the buildings are ready to move with the earth. Because if the earth moves and your building doesn't move, your building's going to collapse. And so you see these beams here, these steel beams on the side. These beams are where this building was retrofitted after the the Loma uh, Loma Prieta quake in 1988. And so this building, there was millions of dollars that were spent seismically upgrading and retrofitting this building. Without that, we wouldn't be able to actually meet here because the building would not have met the seismic requirements for an assembly. But if you move to the West Coast... The buildings are bolted down to the ground. Why? Because there's no fear of earthquakes there. The the ground doesn't move. The sky moves. And so on the West Coast, they bolt buildings down so that... On the East Coast, they bolt buildings down so that when tornadoes come... Thank you. When tornadoes come, the building doesn't move. So 
the, the buildings on the, on the West Coast. So what happens with, when an earthquake hits the, West, the East Coast? What happens when an earthquake hits the East Coast? Everything crumbles. And what happens if a tornado hits the West Coast? Everything falls apart. So the steadfast man is bolted down like buildings on the, West, on the East Coast, but movable like buildings on the West Coast. You can move with the earth, but you can also stand strong against the storm. That's what it means to be steadfast. Nimble stick-to-itiveness. It means that tribulation can't move me, but God can move me. It means that when I'm standing in the day of tribulation, the first thought that comes to my mind is not, I'm out of here. It means that when I feel like I'm being persecuted on my job, I do not allow that to become a reason to quit. Because I don't quit because I'm persecuted. I only quit because God says leave. It means I don't leave the church because I'm offended about what somebody said to me or even what the pastor said. I only leave when God says go. Are you hearing me? And this is, this is what steadfastness is. Steadfastness is, I look in the face of tribulation and say, I don't care what you do to me, you can't move me. I'm not going anywhere. I will stand at this place until I die. I am not moving. I am steadfast. I am unmovable. I will not... What would you say, Lord? Time to go? All right, I'll see you later. <laughs> as soon as God says go, I'm ready. I'm steadfast, unmovable, Yet ready to move in a moment's notice. The moment the Lord begins to move me, I'm ready to move with him. That's what it means to be steadfast. And the scripture says that this man is not just steadfast, but he's steadfast trusting in the Lord. He's steadfast trusting in the Lord. Now I want us to see how this plays out a little bit here. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 through 20, we see Abraham just Newly moved into the promised land. God recently pulled him out of Ur of the Chaldees. He goes to Haran. He's there with his father. And then God pulls him out of Haran, says, get out of your father's house. Go to the place I'll show you and I'll make of you a great nation. And he picks up and he moves to the promised land and he pitches his tents there and he builds an altar. And all of a sudden, excuse me, all of a sudden he just got there and now a time of famine arises in the promised land. And so Abraham immediately resorts to leaning on his own understanding, forgets the fact that it was God that moved him to the promised land. Now he's going to decide to move himself to the next place. Don't ever take one step in the spirit and the next step in the flesh. Once you take one step in the spirit, you better take every step in the spirit. Because the place where the spirit will move you to, the flesh cannot sustain you there. And once you take one step in the flesh, there's going to be many more steps that you don't see that the flesh is going to lead you into. See, it's, it's like that when you're messing around with sin. You have no idea where sin is going to take you. You think you can just take this one little step in the flesh. Well, I'll just, I'll just dabble in this a little bit. But you have no idea that once you take that one step, there's another step waiting for you that's not even apparent to you before you take the first step. And then you're going to, you're going to feel like you've got to take that second step. And then there's another step. And there's another step. And Abraham learned this the hard way in Genesis 12 because he says to Sarah, let's just go down there to get some grain. We're just going there to get some food. But just before they enter in to Egypt, he sees all of these Egyptian women coming out and he realizes that his wife Sarah is the most beautiful woman that he has seen so far. And he starts thinking, uh-oh, this ain't good. So he says, all right, Sarah, I need you to do me a favor. Uh, I need you to tell everybody there that you're my sister. Now, how would you feel if you were Abraham's wife? I mean, how would you feel wives if your husband said, we're about to go into this city, tell him you're my sister. How would you feel? I mean, what would that do to you, you know? What did that do to your self-confidence? Like, he's ashamed of me? I said, no, baby, it's not that I'm ashamed of you. You're just too fine. And somebody's going to kill me. And take you as their wife. So Sarah said, okay, I'll do it. Abram didn't see that step coming. I mean, had he thought to himself in the promised land, if I go down to Egypt, I'm probably going to start lying down there. The only thing he's thinking is, let's leave the promised land to go get some grain. But by the time he gets down there, before even entering in, now i got to start telling some lies. So he starts telling them that Sarah's his wife. You know the story. And the Lord speaks to Pharaoh in a dream. He, was, he took her as his wife. And the Lord speaks to Pharaoh and says, You're as good as dead because of this righteous man's wife that you took. He goes, What righteous man's What are you talking about, Lord? He said, Sarah, that's Abraham's wife. Lord, I didn't know. And God says, I know. That's why I'm not going to kill you. Now give her back to her husband. 
Give him an offering, he'll pray for you, and you'll be all right. <laughs> Pharaoh's upset the next morning. says, what have you done? Abraham, why did you do this to me? You've done something to me that shouldn't be done. And Abraham says, well, I knew that none of you feared the Lord. Isn't it funny that Pharaoh's operating in the fear of the Lord right now? Abraham says, I knew that you didn't fear the Lord. Actually, Abraham, you didn't fear the Lord at that moment. And so now Abraham and Sarah, they're headed back to the promised land. They've got maid servants, men servants, cattle herds. Pharaoh gave him an offering. He goes back to the promised land, goes back and builds an altar and calls on the name of the Lord. And when he calls on the name of the Lord, it's as if he's saying, God, don't ever let me do that again. And, and he's, when, he's, when he builds an altar and calls on the name of the Lord, it's like he's making a commitment to God. God, I will never do that again. Have you ever been to that place where you say, God, I will never do that again? I mean, have you cried out earnestly, God, I will never do that again. Have you made God some promises? God, I promise you, I will never do that again. That's where Abraham was. Lord, I will never, ever, ever do that again. And have you ever found yourself doing again what you promised the Lord you would never do again? It took Abraham a few chapters to get there, but he found himself back in that same place. If you go to Genesis chapter 20, verse 1 through 17, another famine hits. And instead of going to Egypt, we're just going to go halfway between the promised land and Egypt. There's a, 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 a city called Gerar. And he goes to Gerar, and there's a king there named Abimelech. And Abraham walks in. Once again, he thought, we're just going to go get us some grain. It's not a sin to get grain. How is going to get grain a sin? So he's, let's go to get some grain. We're just going to go in here and get some grain. We're going to be out. It's going to take us 45 minutes tops. But when they enter into Gerar, Abraham looks around again. He's like, why is it that everywhere I go, my wife is the most beautiful woman in the entire city? I See, I know how Abraham feels. Every, every husband in here better say, me too, me too. <laughs> so he says, Sarah, do me a favor. She says, oh, don't tell me, let me guess. I'm your sister, right? You got it, baby. <laughs> Same thing, King Abimelech. And now Abraham has to leave again, running back to the promised land, because he almost lost his wife there and God had to intervene. So now Abraham is thinking, I'll never do this again. What Abraham didn't realize was that he had created a generational tendency that he was going to pass down to his son. Now let me say this. I don't believe in generational curses. I believe when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, it puts an end to every curse. There's no curse over you. There's only blessing over you. But you can act like you're under a curse. There was a generational tendency, a culture that Abraham created in his household that his son Isaac learned. And so now when we get to Genesis chapter 26, a famine hits and Isaac says, let's go to Gerar. And they go to Gerar and Isaac looks around and he says, my wife, Rebecca, is the finest woman in this entire city. It ran in the family. They just knew how to pick them. The patriarchs knew how to pick them. Of course, it all went wrong with Jacob and Leah. He got swindled, though. He got bamboozled. King James Version said she was tender-eyed. Yes, yes. My mama would have said she was cock-eyed. Anyway, back to the point, back to the message. So he says to Rebecca, do me a favor. Tell everybody here that you're my sister. And so she says, all right, okay, all right, I'll do that. Women were real submissive. My wife wouldn't have done it. My wife would have been like, no. I'm his wife. <laughs> now show me your love by fighting for me. <laughs> and so they're doing this brother-sister charade. But for some reason, they're staying in this hotel it's right beneath Abimelech, the king of Gerar's palace. And Abimelech looks out the window one day, and he sees Isaac and Rebekah kicking it by the pool. And they thought nobody was around, and so they were, you know, fondling, you know, hugging on each other. They were all up on each other. And Abimelech sees it, and he goes, what the? 
Get Isaac in here right now. So Isaac is at the pool just kicking it with his wife. And somebody says, King wants to see you right now. What's going on? I don't know, but he said it was urgent. Isaac shows up in the king's presence. The king says, why did you say she was your sister when she's obviously your wife? No, king, she's my sister. You are real close to your sister then. I saw you by the pool all up on your sister. You can't tell me that's your sister. Now, I got sisters. I ain't never done that with my sister. Isaac says, well, I thought one of you guys would kill me because she's so beautiful. He goes, do you, are you crazy? Don't you know one of my men could have come and taken her as their wife? You know what kind of sin you would have brought on this city? Are you crazy? He said, bring, bring all of my generals in here. Bring, all, bring my whole court, all my elders, my deacons. Bring everybody in here. And they called all of them in. And Gerard says, see this man, Isaac? You know that, that woman, Rebecca? She is his wife, not his sister. And if any of you touch her, I'm going to kill you. You got it? They said, yeah, we got it, king. All right, okay. Now, go ahead and dwell in the land anywhere you want. My, my place is your place. Hang out anywhere. So Isaac says, okay, cool. But this is the thing. What seems apparent in this passage of Scripture is that Isaac stopped in Gerar on his way down to Egypt. Gerar was only supposed to be a pit stop because he got to Gerar and found that the famine was there too. Abraham and Isaac, all three of them moved because they found themselves in the midst of a famine in the promised land. And do you know what a famine is? A famine is when things appear that they're not going to go right. A famine is when your efforts appear to be potentially fruitless. You see, what we're going to find out is that neither Isaac nor Abraham had sowed. It's not that they sowed and reaped nothing. They didn't even sow because they perceived that they were in the midst of a famine and that in the midst of a famine, our sowing is going to be fruitless because there's not going to be any reaping. How did they know that? Because they looked around them and nobody else was successful at sowing and reaping. Nobody else was being fruitful in any way. Nobody else was reaping a harvest. And so they thought to themselves, we're going to be like everybody else. We're going to sow and reap nothing. So it's best for us to save our seed. And let's go to some place that seems fruitful. And let's sow in that place. And so all three of them are wandering in search, or both of them in all three situations, are wandering in search of a fruitful land. A place where they can sow their seed and reap. Now here in Genesis 26, as Isaac is thinking about taking Rebekah and heading down to Egypt, in verse 2, God comes to Isaac and says, Do not go to Egypt. Isn't it interesting that God is able to interrupt this generational tendency with simply one word? Not, not a whole deliverance process to break off generational curses. Simply one word from God. Don't go. And it's done. God took Isaac into his one-step program. (laughs) Out of darkness and into light. (laughs) Out of deception and into the truth. Right? God says, don't go to Egypt, but dwell in the land that I tell you to dwell in and sow there. You think it's a famine, but it only looks to be a famine to you. And it looks to be a famine to you because you have not seen a blessed man, a man who fears the Lord and takes delight in his commands. You haven't seen that man so yet. That's why you think you're in a famine. But I'm telling you that the famine does not apply to the people of God. The famine does not apply to those who trust the Lord. Because in God's economy, there is never a famine, but it is always fruitful. And so he says, stay where you are. So Isaac says, do you want me to go back to the promised land? God says, no, stay where you are. It wasn't my will for you to come here, but I'm going to use it while you're here. Isn't it a trip (laughs) that even when you go to the wrong place and do the wrong thing, God can still use it. And God knew that Isaac could not simply make the decision in his own power to go back into the will of God. God had to take him back into his will. So he says, what do you want me to do, God? Stay and sow right where you are. Now I'm going to use you as an example. Now I'm going to set you up so that all of the people of Gerar are sowing and reaping nothing. I'm going to make you fruitful before their very eyes. I'm going to to make you an example of what it means to be blessed by the Lord. Stay right where you are and sow. Sow right where you are. And it says that year, in verse 12, it says that year, 
Isaac sowed seed in the land and reaped a hundredfold. That year, right there in the midst of a famine, he reaps a hundredfold because he obeys the word of the Lord. There's some of you that God is calling to sow seed in the midst of a famine. And the only reason you think it's a famine is because everyone else around you is sowing and reaping nothing. Everyone else. And that's what fear of bad news is. Fear of bad news. See, this, the thing is, the anticipation that something is going to go wrong is worse than, than the thing actually going wrong. So much of what we experience that's negative is only the anticipation of a potential negative. It's not the real negative. It's not the real thing. It's just the, the, the anticipation of it. You ever thought you were going to get in a car crash and freaked out and then nothing happened? You missed it? You ever thought you were going to get mugged or jumped? And then the guy turned out to be walking past you? Come on, y'all can be real. Yeah, that happened to me a few times too. <laughs> right? You ever thought you were going to get fired and then didn't get fired? You ever felt a pain in your chest and thought you were having a heart attack and went to the hospital and they said it's just gas? <laughs> I mean, we all have those experiences. You ever had a near miss? A near miss where calamity should have overtaken you, but it didn't? Some arrow flew by day, but you realized after the fact that you didn't have to fear the arrow that flew by day? nor the terror that strikes by night, nor the de desolation that lays waste at noonday. When you come out of these seasons where stuff just passes, tribulation passes by you. You know, all of, I was walking with my cousin one day and a bullet whizzed in between us. Right in between our, when I was in high school, we're walking on the playground. All of a sudden, a bullet just zoosh, right in between us. We looked at each other. We said, what was that? What was that? You heard it too? Yeah. Well, I guess it was nothing. We keep walking and we're talking. And another bullet whizzes right in between. We looked at each other. We were out of there. Somebody was shooting at us from nowhere. And it's funny, after it was all over, I thought about I could have died that day. I mean, that bullet could have hit one of us and it would have been all over us, all over for us. But you know what? The Lord was watching us. That person was probably aiming at us. But you know what? The Lord was directing that bullet. He said, No, 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 no. Go right around them. No, no. You, we couldn't protect ourselves. We, you can't outrun a bullet. But all of a sudden, we come to the place where we realize that the Lord is our light and our salvation. So whom shall we fear? The Lord. See, all of a sudden, I realize that I don't have to be afraid of the arrow that flies by day. Not being afraid of bad news. Now, Paul talks about this, con this concept in Ephesians chapter 6 called the evil day. And I want to propose to you this morning that no matter how strong you are, you're only as strong as the evil day. I, you may be strong enough to withstand what you're going through today. But are you strong enough to stand on the evil day? That's the question I want to ask you. Are you able to stand on the evil day? What is the evil day? I'll give you an example of the evil day. The evil day was the day when I was 11 years old and in the 6th grade. When James Bell decided to have a wrestling match with me without my permission. James Bell was 100 pounds my senior. And he was throwing me around like a basketball. And he tried to dribble me. But I didn't bounce. And after tossing me to the earth, he slipped and fell on top of me. And when he got off of me, I couldn't breathe. And when I finally caught my breath, I couldn't stand. And when they finally stood me on my feet, I couldn't walk. And I couldn't straighten up my body more than this much for a few months. And I couldn't run for a year. You ever had a day like that where something hits you so hard? See, most stuff, it hits you and you recover immediately. But have you ever gotten hit by something out of left field that you could not immediately recover from? Something that took you maybe years to recover from. Actually, I still have problems with my back today that I blame James Bell for. I want to find James Bell and thank him. Lay hands on him. Get him healed. You want another example of the evil day? It was 1995. Summer of 1995. I was 18 years old and in Israel on a tour of the Holy Land. Staying at the Institute for Holy Land Studies. 
And what I found in Israel is that a lot of the, the, the Jewish people there are extremely pushy and rude. They will run right over you. And uh, several times I was accosted, yelled at, tried, some drunk guy tried to attack me one time. And I, throughout the whole trip, I just responded with grace and love and patience. Now, that's hard for me. You know why it's hard for me? Because I'm from, I'm from East Oakland. Now, the thing about me is I've got, I've got these two sides. So, so very naturally, I'm, I'm a meek person. Like, I'm a, I've never been a fighter. I've always been a person who tried to make peace. You know, people would walk up on me in school, what's up? And I'd be like, brother, please, brother, listen. Martin Luther King Jr. would roll over in his grave if he saw this going down right now. We've got to think of the price that our people paid for us to have walk hand in hand in unity. You know, we can't do this. Yeah, I would try to talk myself out of a fight in a second, but a big part of it was because of my faith in Jesus Christ. But the prevailing rule of the street in Oakland is don't ever allow anyone to disrespect you. So after it was over, I'd go home and I'd think to myself, you're just a punk. You're a punk. How'd you let him punk you out like that? You're a chump. You're a chump. And so I would wrestle with this where in the moment, I would react with the love of Christ. I remember one time when I was younger, uh, I, I allowed a kid to bully my brother. And then my mom told me, you don't have to allow a kid to bully your brother. Because I thought, that's what I got to do. You know, that's just, but, so I just stood there while he like, beat my brother up. So the next day, my, my mom said, you don't have to do that. You can defend your brother. I said, oh, great. So the next day, the, the kid just looked at my brother sideways and I, blam! <laughs> I picked the kid up and just, blam! <laughs> right? And he ran off crying. I was like, yeah, you know? <laughs> you know? And my mom was like, okay, that's a bit overboard. I got in big trouble for that, you know? I always had trouble finding the middle ground. So I'm in Israel, and, I, and the whole trip, I'm walking in the Spirit until the last day of the trip. And one of the, one of the, the at the school we were staying at, one of the staff members lost his temper. And, uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> let's just say uh, it took, a, uh, it was about two or three people holding me back. Because I couldn't control myself. I, I, I was in the spirit the whole trip, and all of a sudden, this dude wouldn't let me in the in the in the lunch in the snack room. You gotta understand. Sometimes you need some snacks. <laughs> Now, now, I apologized to him the next day, and it was all good. It was fine. The, the point I'm making is that when I go through these seasons where I, I go through these seasons where I, I allow this happens to me, and I walk in the spirit in the moment, but then the, in the memory of the moment, I go back into the flesh, because in the, in the, when, I, when, when the, the moment happens, I just lovingly say, "Listen, brother, we don't need to do this." But then I find myself a month later reliving that circumstance and just like punching the guy in the throat. You know, or smacking him upside the head, kicking him on the ground. Like, I just have these violent thoughts about the situation, you know. I mean, there's, there's somebody else in this room right here that it happened to just a few weeks ago. And I'm not going to say his name, but Jason was standing out there talking to. <laughs> he was standing out there talking to another brother. They were in San Francisco and all of a sudden somebody threw a frisbee and hit that other brother in the back of the head. And Jason went all, all Crips and Bloods on him. What? Hey, I saw you. What you throw that frisbee for? And, and the funny thing was, him and that brother were just sharing the things of God. Yes, the Lord woke me up at 3 o'clock this morning. Oh, and God spoke. Hey, I saw you throw that frisbee. All it takes is a frisbee to pull you out of the spirit and, and into the flesh. That's not the evil day. That's just a Frisbee. You're in the flesh over a snack room and a Frisbee. You're not ready for the evil day. 
But Paul said in Ephesians 6.10, he said, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. You know what? Sometimes the mightiest power is the power of restraint. See, I, I, I have the power to beat the living daylights out of you right now, but a greater power restrains me from touching you. It is a, by a greater power that I can love you in this moment. You're hearing me. When I go to Berkeley, I don't know why I get accosted in Berkeley. People yell at me, scream at me, cuss at me, and they pick me out of crowds. I mean, really, I was sitting there having dinner with my wife and baby and one other person, and we're sitting there in the, in the Asian ghetto over there by the, by the campus. And, uh, and this, this guy's walking around asking for a change. White dude covered in tattoos, pentagrams tattooed all over his hands. And he walks up to our table and he walks up to me and he goes, I hate you. I hate you. I'm going to kill you. And he's, and he's moving his fist back. And in my, in my mind, and I'm just saying, sir, walk away. Walk away, sir. Walk away. Sir, walk away. But in my mind, my, my wife and baby are sitting there. In my mind, I thought, if he takes a swing, Lord, it's on. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to beat the tar out of him in the name of Jesus. <laughs> Why? Because I'm not going to sit there and get beat down in front of my wife and baby. My wife, no, no. You know why? Because I'm their covering. I'm their protection. And it's not loving my wife and child to let somebody beat me down in public in front of them. Now they feel all unsafe and uncovered and unprotected. And so I'm going to do what I need to do to protect my wife and child. And, and I, can st- I can remain in the spirit. I'm very confident that I could have put the beat down on him in the spirit. I would have spoken tongues the whole In the name of Jesus. <laughs> Paul says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The wiles of the devil are the schemes of the devil. The the devil is scheming constantly. He's scheming constantly to hit you with something that you don't see coming. Coming from a direction that you never saw it coming. And what he's trying to do by hitting you with something that you didn't see coming is he's trying to shake you. To shake you from your place of secure attachment with God. To break you of your steadfastness. To rob you of your commitments to the Lord. He wants to shake that confidence in God. He wants to shake you so that you stumble and fall. And the way he does it is by pulling you out of the spirit and into the flesh. And so Paul says, put on the whole armor of God so that you can stand against the devil's schemes. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against powers and principalities, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places, against the rulers of the darkness of this age. Therefore, put on the whole armor of God so that you might be able to stand in the evil day. See, the evil day is coming. But if you got on the whole armor of God, you can stand in the evil day. Something, I guarantee you, something's going to hit you some point in your life that you didn't see coming. It's going to come from a direction that you didn't see it coming from. Maybe the evil day is the day you lose your job. Maybe your 401k tanks, the stock market tanks, and you lose your whole 401k. Maybe everything you've invested has fallen apart. Maybe you make a financial mistake or somebody robs you or somebody, uh, somebody embezzles money out of your business and then the IRS shows up and says that you owe them some money. For so, you, know, you understand what I'm saying? What I'm saying to you is you have no idea when it's going to come or where it's going to come, but you can make a decision today that you're going to strengthen yourself in the Lord so that when the evil day comes, the evil day can't overtake you. And in actuality, if you're prepared for it, you do not experience the evil day as the evil day. It's only experienced as the evil day when you're in the flesh. See, if you're trying to handle the evil day in the flesh, you because you're trying to deal with evil with evil. And evil cannot deal with evil. You say, fight fire with fire. Actually, that don't make a lick of sense. What if firemen actually tried that? There's a fire. We're going to fight fire with fire. Get rid of that water hose. Get me a fire gun. Right? You know, I need a flamethrower to fight this. You don't fight fire with fire. You fight fire with water. I mean, come on, people. Right? 
And you don't deal with the flesh. You don't deal with evil in the flesh. You can only deal with it in the spirit. That's why Jesus said, do not repay evil with evil, but repay evil with good. That's why he said, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who, who despitefully use you, right? And, he, and so you have to learn that the only way you're going to deal with the evil day is by dealing with it in the spirit. Now, if you're not in the spirit, you're always living in anticipation of the coming of the evil day. Scared to death. Scared to death in fear of the coming of the evil day. Fear of bad news. Every time my mother texts me and says, call me dog. I know everything's okay. She calls me dog. I say, my mom is cool, you know. Or she'll text me and say, hey dog, call a mother. <laughs> you know, I just crack up laughing. But there's sometimes when my mom will text me and say, call me right now. And the first thing I think is, oh Lord, I hope my dad's okay. Is that okay? Son, I just want to know if you want to go to lunch. I was in your neighborhood. <laughs> I'll, I'll call her and I'll be like, hey mom, is everything okay? Yeah, I just wanted to know what size shoe Alethea wears. I'm at the shoe store right now. It's funny that my mind always goes to the worst possible situation when I'm in the flesh. But when I'm in the spirit, I can think to myself, even if my dad's ill, I'm going to go lay hands on him and he's going to be healed. I don't care what it is. If I'm in the spirit, I can handle it. The Holy Spirit is not afraid of bad news. The Holy Spirit is not going around, oh, I hope everything works out. Oh. Can you imagine if the Holy Spirit was afraid? <laughs> It'd be over for all of us. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Oh no, saith the Lord. <laughs> what shall we do, saith God? <laughs> that would not be a very good day. I've gone on a very long tangent. That was supposed to be like a five minute segue. Back to Genesis. <laughs> Help him, Lord. Pray my strength in the Lord. So in Genesis 26, God tells Isaac to sow. He sows that same year and he reaps a hundredfold. And the scripture says that Isaac became prosperous. In the midst of famine, Isaac becomes prosperous. He has to overcome his fear of bad news and he has to be steadfast. I know it doesn't make any sense to sow here, but God said sow here. I know it doesn't seem like there's going to be any fruit if I sow here, but God says sow here. And so he has to overcome his fear of bad news by sowing his seed in the midst of famine. And he does so, and out of that obedience, he reaps a 100-fold return. And the scripture says that Isaac prospered until he was very prosperous. And he prospered so much while everyone else was going broke that finally Abimelech, the king of Gerar, comes to him and says, you got to get up out of here. you got to leave our land. He says, why? What have I done? He says, you've become mightier than we. He thought there was going to be a reverse Egypt situation there. You know where the Egyptians enslaved the Israelites? He thought, they're going to come in here and take over. And pretty soon they're going to name this place Israel. You've got to get up out of here, Isaac. Isaac was steadfast until the situation moves him on. And he was able to sense... In Abimelech telling him he has to leave, that's the hand of God. See, your steadfastness does not mean that even if your boss fires you, you keep showing up to work. I'm not leaving until the Lord tells me to leave. Steadfastness simply means that you don't leave of your own accord. It means tribulation doesn't move you, but sometimes the situation does. And when the situation forces you to move, you can just assume that that's the hand of God. God says, go on. And so Isaac goes, cool, let's go. So he goes down into the valley of Gerar. Now he's not in the city anymore. He moves down into the valley of Gerar. And his men, he goes down to the valley. He's like, look at all these wells. And they look in the wells, and they're full of dirt. And he goes, wait a minute. These are the wells my father Abraham dug. The Philistines had filled up those wells, the wells that his father Abraham had dug. It's interesting that the moment he gets rejected and sent away, God leads him back to the lost inheritance of his father Abraham. 
In the process, when God spoke to him and said, don't go to Egypt, God was breaking off of him the negative tendencies of his father Abraham. Why? Because he was preparing him to reap the harvest of the righteousness of his father Abraham. And so he says to his servants, dig up these wells. And they dig out the wells that Abraham dug. There's some stuff in your family line that God has prepared for you that all you got to do is dig it out. It's there for you. You're going to inherit it. All you got to do is dig it out. And so they dig out those wells, and then as men find another place, they think, this is a great place to dig a well. And they dig a well, they hit the water table, and they say, we found water. And Isaac goes, this is awesome. Wow, they rejected us, but God provided for us here. This is awesome. This is the place. Now we're going to break out, and we're going to grow, and we're going to prosper. But all of a sudden, the herdsmen of Gerar come running over. They say, all of this water is our water. And Isaac goes, no, 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 we, we, we dug this. No, 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 this is our water. And so Isaac goes, okay, 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 we're not going to fight. Let's go, guys. The hand of God is moving them again. So they go to another place, and they go further out from the valley, and they find another place. Okay, nobody's here. We're cool. We're not taking over anybody's land. And the men dig another well, and they find water. And sure, it's, we found water. This is great. This is the place. Now we're going to flourish here, and everything's going to be great. And the herdsmen of Gerar come running. No, this is our water. And Isaac goes, okay, it's cool. And so they move to another place. And they dig another well. And guess what? Nobody quarrels with them there. And Isaac looks around, and where is he? He's back in the promised land. Oh, wow. The situation moved me back here. I got into trouble in Gerar by my own power. But it was the power of God that moved me back into the promised land. The power of God that came on me that said, when you lose, when things are taken from you, you're not going to walk around feeling like you've lost. Because you can't lose the blessing. When people take from you that which you have worked so hard for. Every time Isaac, I mean, imagine it, he's got all these crops that he's planted there in Gerar. And Abimelech says, you've got to leave. This is ours. And then all these wells that he's, un- that he's dug up in the valley. And the herdsmen say, you've got to leave. These are ours. And then another fresh well that he digs outside of the valley. And they say, you've got to leave. This is ours. But all the time in the midst of this rejection, 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 rejection. You're moved here. You're moved there. You're moved there. The one thing that was not moved was his heart. Because his heart was steadfast, trusting in the Lord. See, your, your situation can move all at once as long as your heart doesn't move in with it. There can be a storm without as long as there's not an earthquake within. And Isaac names that place Rehoboth, which means spacious. Because he realizes that when he was in Gerar, which he thought was the perfect place for him, Look at this, 100-fold harvest. We're doing awesome. This is great. we got to stay here. And when the king Abimelech came to him and Gerard said, you got to leave, he felt like some, it was like somebody had shot his dog. It was the worst day of his life, the worst thing. But he says, okay, all right, we'll handle it. You ever lost something, had something taken from you, and it hit you so hard, but you're trying to, oh, I'm cool, I'm cool. I'm cool, I'm good. I'm good, I'm good. No, I'm cool. You ever been there? No, really, it's all good. It's all good. No, 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 real, no, really. I'm cool, I'm cool, I'm cool. But inside, you're just hurting. I mean, you're trying to hold it together. You're just hurting. But he looks back at that place and goes, we were constricted there. We didn't have any space to grow. At the place where we think we're most prosperous, sometimes God says, I've got to move you on to that place because I've got a Rehoboth waiting for you in the promised land. A spacious place. You can't move yourself there. You can't make a decision to go. God will move you there. He's already in the process of doing it. That's who he is. And in Rehoboth, all of a sudden, King Abimelech shows up. And Isaac says, what do you want now? What have you come to take from me now? Since you hate me, you sent me away. He says, no, 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 no. I'm not here to make trouble. I'm here because I see how much God has blessed you. I'm here to make covenant. 
Mark my words, there's some of you in this room that are being persecuted in the workplace. And I'm telling you that even the very ones who are persecuting you are going to see the way God blesses you, and they're going to come back to make covenant with you one day. They're going to come back to you and say, can we be friends, please? Right now, they're persecuting you, trying to push you away, but they're going to come back to you. When they see God bless you, they're going to come back and say, I need you. Can we be friends, please? You know what Isaac did? Isaac could have said, man, get out of here. (laughs) But you know what he did? He said, have a seat. And he said to his servants, prepare a feast. And he prepared a feast for his enemies. And they became his friends. Steadfast. No fear of bad news. Heart is steadfast. Trusting in the Lord. Unmovable, yet ready to move. Nimble, yet stick-to-itive. Not stubborn. When you're stubborn, you can be moved by neither God nor man. But when you're steadfast, you can be moved by God, but not man. Trouble can't move you. Trial can't move you. Tribulation can't move you. But when you sense God moving you, You're pulling up the stakes, packing up the tent, and you're moving. You're moving with God. God has blessing in store for you. But God wants you to know that you don't live in an insecure place. You live in a secure place. And that secure place is the blessing of the Lord. His anger is for a moment, but his favor is for a lifetime. Everybody stand this morning. Lift your hands to the Lord. I bless you with the blessings of heaven and the blessings of earth, with the blessings of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, with the blessing of steadfastness of heart, that your heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord, with great grace and great power, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. God bless you.